Welcome to the 28th episode of Coronavirus to Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we host the Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful, fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, we are now in the midst of the Thanksgiving COVID surge. Although the number of new cases has leveled off, It remains at all-time highs. As a result, hospitals are at critical care maximums and deaths are spiking. A week ago, 3,656 individuals died on a single day, 1,000 more than any day prior to the current surge, including the previous peak last March. Last week, California passed 2 million confirmed cases, And the governor announced that the state had ordered 5,000 body bags in anticipation of the high mortality. And of course, there's great fear about how much disease was transmitted when people came together for the most recent holidays. Despite these heart-wrenching statistics, there are at least four reasons beyond the vaccine for people not to become pessimistic. The first is that despite the growing fatigue Mask wearing and social distancing work. When people do the smart things and avoid going to indoor events and make sure that they are tested after exposure and then quarantine themselves, we can reduce the risks of people becoming ill from COVID. Second, doctors and nurses remain dedicated to providing excellent patient care and they are learning better and better ways to help patients recover from this virus. Third, Even when hospitals say that ICUs are at full capacity, it doesn't mean that patients will be sent away or left to die. There are other places in hospitals with critically trained personnel and the needed machines, such as the pre- and post-operative areas of the surgical area and a variety of other options, including the ED and so-called step-down units that can provide the same excellent critical care. But of course, there aren't limitless resources But fortunately, we have not yet reached the point where care will be compromised. And finally, for most people, the risk of dying remains relatively low. Still, 40% of deaths that are happening are occurring in the 2 to 3% of Americans in nursing homes. In addition, there's good news when it comes to the flu. The fear had been that the combination of COVID and flu would be a double whammy for critical care units. Instead, Only 0.2% of flu tests this year have been positive based upon 22,000 samples in contrast to 11% last year. That's a 20-fold difference in the need for hospital care from flu at the same point each year. 
And that implies that masking and social distancing for COVID is proving even more effective against influenza. But before we become too optimistic, December is very early in the flu season. Robbie, as usual, our listeners have followed the story of the changing genetics of the coronavirus and have asked us to provide details. To begin, for listeners who are not in medicine or scientific endeavors, what does it mean that the virus has mutated? Almost all of them nervously ask the same question. Will the current vaccines work with these new mutations we're hearing about? Jeremy, as we've said on this show multiple times, all viruses mutate. In fact, thousands of changes have been identified for this coronavirus around the world. But nearly all the changes to date are relatively inconsequential. That's what makes people a bit more worried about what's going on, particularly in the strain that's been identified in England. The fear that many people have when they hear that a virus is mutating is that the change will make the virus more lethal. Rarely is this the case. Most often, as is happening now, what changes is that the virus becomes more transmissible. And when that happens, the new strain ends up dominating over the old one. Most often, little about the virus shifts as a result of the mutation, but when it does, and the virus becomes more transmissible, the number of cases are going to rise, and that's what we're facing today. Think about it. If there are two strains, and one has a likelihood of infecting two people, and the other five, consider what happens over time. The virus that infects the five in round one will go on for each of the five to infect five more so that 25 people will have it in round two, whereas the one that infects, infects only two will produce four infections in the second round. And by the third one, the 25 become 125, while the four only becomes eight. With this mutant strain, the thinking is that the spike proteins are what's changing and they're becoming stickier to people's cells. That's why more people, even when exposed to a lower concentration of virus, would have disease developing, whereas with the previous strain, that would not be the case. That's what we've seen in the south of England. The British variant has a total of 23 mutations, including several that modified the protruding spike protein, to make it more effectively lock into human cells and infect them. Although the added transmission wasn't as stark as in the hypothetical example I gave, it appears to increase the transmissibility by 70%. And given the exponential process of viral growth, that's very significant. In response, Prime Minister Boris Johnson imposed strict lockdown measures and nations across Europe have closed their borders to people coming from England. In total, this variant is accounting for 60% of the new cases. Of course, all of this is likely too late. A similar set of viral mutations have been identified extensively in South Africa, and as well as in multiple European nations. Although this particular genetic sequence has not been identified, in the 50,000 or so genetic sequence analyses that have been done in the United States, 
given that the total number of people with COVID is now 40 or 50 million, the likelihood is very high that this mutant strain exists. And just think about how many people have flown from London to New York over the past few weeks, and none of them have been tested. In fact, we did not impose testing until today. As you say, the big question is whether these changes will make the current vaccine less effective than the 95% levels demonstrated during phase three testing. That remains to be seen, but most virologists believe that given that the vaccine works against multiple proteins on each of those viral spikes, that it will continue to prevent disease We just have to see, and the companies that manufacture the virus are optimistic that if the vaccine becomes less efficacious, that they can modify it to meet the configuration of the new strain of this particular coronavirus. Robbie, I read that Dr. Fauci has raised his estimate for how many people will need to be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity. Is this new mutation the reason? Jeremy, I'm not sure how Dr. Fauci reached his calculation, but let me explain the variables and how this higher percentage might be accurate. Let's start with a concept we've discussed multiple times in this podcast, the r naught. That's the number of people under average social distancing that one person with the virus will transmit. And for the coronavirus, that number has been three. The goal of vaccination is to modify the probability of transmission from three to under one. Once it is under one, then each individual will give it to less than one person so that quickly the number of infected people will shrink and the virus will begin to disappear. If you think about it, if two-thirds of people are immune with sufficient antibodies to prevent infection, either from having had the virus or for a vaccine, then the r naught becomes one or slightly less. And that's where the original 200 million people needed to be vaccinated for herd immunity to arise was derived. Now let's look at all the assumptions that could make the number of people who have been vaccinated need to be higher for this virus to go away. As you say, the first is this new variant. If it's 70% more likely to be transmitted, that would raise the effective r naught from three to approximately five. And now rather than having to vaccinate two thirds of the population, we'd have to vaccinate four in every five people or 80% of the population. And then, as you pointed out, the mutation could make the vaccine less effective. As such, vaccinating 100 people, rather than leading 95 of them to be immune, could result in 80 or 85%. Suddenly, we need to vaccinate 250 million people to prevent transmission to the 200. When you combine these factors with a 70% higher rate of transmission, that would require 240 million people to be immune. And a vaccination rate that's 50% lower, we could easily be requiring 90% of Americans to be vaccinated before we could end the wearing of masks and the elimination of social distance. I suspect Dr. Fauci isn't sure what will happen, but he knows that the odds are that more individuals will need vaccination 
now than people assumed even a month ago. Grabby, after changing his estimate, Dr. Fauci did some interviews in which many argue he gave off the impression that he was intentionally downplaying uh, what he knew all along because the country wasn't ready to accept it yet. Uh, many of his critics are comparing this to when he told the country in the beginning of the pandemic that masks were not needed by the public, which he had done in an effort to save as much PPE as possible for healthcare workers. What are your thoughts on this? Is this something that those that don't like him are blowing out of proportion, or is it something to genuinely be concerned about? And just out of curiosity, how would you handle a similar ethical situation? Complete honesty with the public versus potentially being misleading or overly optimistic uh, for what some may consider to be the greater good. This reminds me of the whole concept of being a world leader and finding out that in a month an asteroid is going to come on and wipe out all life on Earth. Do you tell the public and let society potentially devolve into anarchy? Or do you not tell them and let them go about their lives as usual? Or something in between? Jeremy, I have tremendous respect for Dr. Fauci. He is caught in the middle of a political battle that to me is the opposite of evidence-based science. The absolute truth in the early period would have been, we don't know. But that's not acceptable in the Sunday morning talk shows. And he doesn't get to mandate people's behaviors and decisions. Remember, a month ago, less than half of people were saying they wanted to be vaccinated, and now people are complaining they have to wait. To get to 90%, you have to first reach 70%. I suspect he may have had his doubts and wanted to set a threshold he thought we could meet. Now, with the data we have, the best guess is that the actual number is higher, but we will still need to reach the first plateau in order to get to the second. In terms of the asteroid hypothetical, what's happening with COVID is very different. In the asteroid scenario, death is inevitable. Here, a solution is on the horizon. What I'd really like to see is the politics taken out of the pandemic policy. To that end, let me turn the question around. As an historian, you're aware of the various political divides in our nation dating back to Hamilton and Burr, and resulting in civil war in Lincoln's time. In the same way that war usually unites a nation, I would have hoped that the pandemic might have done the same for the United States. Instead, it seems to have led in the opposite direction. Why did this happen? And what can we do next time that we face a pandemic to avoid it from exacerbating the dangers and increasing the mortality for Americans. Robbie, if I'm being honest, I think a big part of the problem is the 24-hour news media. The media survives on ad buys and ratings and sensationalism. Donald Trump as a president has been a golden goose for the media. The media on the left makes their money by criticizing everything he does while not criticizing any of the leadership mistakes made by Democratic leaders. The media on the right makes their money by glorifying everything he does and criticizing those who criticize him. I actually believe that after Trump leaves office, traditional media will likely transform away from the sensationalism 
in what is likely to be much more, for the lack of a better word, boring Biden administration. I think we'll see traditional media struggle in a way that we have never seen before. A lot of people do not realize this, but in the lead up to America's involvement in World War II, the nation was extremely divided about handle the growing threat of Nazi Germany. We never had that Pearl Harbor moment with the pandemic. It's a lot harder to view an invisible virus as a threat than that of an attack from a foreign nation. I think the culture of the media and people's need for instant news and 24-hour speculation from partisan pundits whose primary goal is getting ratings for ad revenue needs to change along with the way the government addresses the public. You mentioned the Civil War earlier. Abraham Lincoln is considered by many, myself included, to be the best president in American history. During the war, he actually passed an executive order allowing for the arrest of any journalist deemed irresponsibly reporting or intentionally sowing division. I think that is an extremely dangerous thing, and I would never want that to happen again. We as a country need a free press. The media on both sides, however, needs to be more understanding of the division that it is sowing, whether intentionally or not. It is the media's job to ask leaders from every party tough questions, not drive division for ratings. I think that if the media and politicians view the pandemic in the same way with the same goal of the common good and address it responsibly while consistently telling the public the truth, and if the media could take a more nonpartisan approach and ask difficult questions without sowing division, I think that would be awesome. I unfortunately do not see this change happening in political culture or the media culture anytime soon, though. Robbie, another listener sent a question. She asked, I'm 48 years old and my parents just had their 80th birthdays. When will we be able to get vaccinated? Jeremy, in the current first phase, direct health care providers, hospital workers, and patients in nursing homes would be the recipients of the first 30 million doses. And of course, each of them will then need a second set of doses. In a vote a week ago, CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices recommended that people aged 75 and older and frontline essential workers like police and firemen receive vaccination in the second phase, which they label 1B. In total, with 100 million doses from Pfizer and another 100 million from Moderna, that we could encompass and protect 100 million individuals. In the third phase, 1C, eligible people would be those adults 65 and older, along with people with underlying medical conditions that put them at higher risk of getting severely ill from COVID-19, and other essential non-frontline workers, including those in construction, trucking, and food services. The hope is with 100 million more doses from Moderna, at this third phase could start soon after the second, possibly in late winter or early spring. This recommendation has drawn some questions as to why would we vaccinate young, healthy, non-frontline workers in the third phase before we vaccinate others with severe medical conditions. But of course, in all this analysis, it assumes a high rate of people will decide to be vaccinated 
Because if they don't do that, all these phases will be compressed with one overlapping the next, and we could see vaccine availability for a greater number of individuals as early as late February or early March. As such, the listener's parents would most likely be in the second wave since they'd be over age 75. But she, as a healthy 48-year-old, would be in the fourth group that the committee calls phase two after 1A, 1B, and 1C are complete. Hopefully, with Pfizer having committed to an additional 100 million doses by July 31st and Moderna working to increase its production, all of this could occur sometime in the summer. And as we said, if a significant number of people in the first three phases decline the vaccine, all this could be in late spring. A friend of mine who is young and healthy worries that the country will run out of vaccines before he becomes eligible to be vaccinated. What should I tell him? Jeremy, what's interesting to me is how the mindset of people have shifted. Fear has dissipated about Operation Warp Speed and the quickness with which the vaccine was developed. And a scarcity mentality is affecting many people with great fear of having to wait. But in response to the listener's question about running out of vaccine, it's not going to happen. Pfizer has promised a second 100 million doses by the end of July, with 70 million of them by June 30th. The agreement includes the option to buy 400 million more doses from Pfizer. Recognize that there are other issues such as distribution and administration. When you put it together, there'd be at least 370 million doses by the end of June, which would be enough for the first 185 million people, with the option to vaccinate a total of 285 million by the end of the summer. There's a long stretch, however, between where we are now and getting that vaccine to the majority of Americans. And that means that masks, social distancing, and testing will be our reality for six to eight months. And that's going to be a problem with the coronavirus fatigue that seems to be gripping a growing percentage of our country. Just to provide additional reassurance to your friend, there are four other companies, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, Novavax, and GlaxoSmithKline working to produce an effective and safe vaccine in addition to Pfizer and Moderna. And the U.S. government already has contracted for 100 million doses from each of these companies once they receive FDA approval. As such, theoretically, the vaccine can be available for more people earlier than we have said. But once again, no one should fear that they won't be able to get the vaccine sometime in the first half of 2021. Robbie, a listener heard about two severe allergic reactions to the vaccine in England and a couple more in the United States. Uh, we even saw a nurse pass out on TV during an interview uh, after her vaccine. Uh, she's becoming worried. Uh, what does all of this mean? As the listener said, two individuals in England experienced what's called severe anaphylactic reaction. 
This is the type of major allergy that you see in some children with peanuts and some adults from various medications. So far, this type of severe reaction has happened to six individuals in the first 300,000 doses given, or about one in 50,000 people. It's not uncommon with various medications that people take at present, including vaccines. And most likely, it's due to one of the stabilizing chemicals in the vaccine, not to the messenger RNA itself. To be on the cautious side, the FDA is advising that people with a history of severe allergic reaction not take the virus at this time. If people have allergies, but no history of an anaphylactic reaction, the medical advice currently is that they be vaccinated, but wait 30 minutes or so before leaving the facility to make sure that nothing happens. And the federal government will be supplying to all vaccine administration sites, at least initially, the medications needed to treat a severe allergic response or even an anaphylactic reaction, medications that include epinephrine and hydrocortisone. And of course, the FDA will be closely monitoring what happens and any potential allergic reactions. Robbie, in hearing your explanation, I'm curious, what's exactly in the vaccines? Jerry, the ingredients in these vaccines are pretty standard for all vaccines. The Pfizer vaccine has as its active ingredient the messenger RNA that's needed to code for the spike protein. This RNA, like all an RNA, is built from four nucleic acids, the same ones that are in our body. The difference, however, is that the protein it codes for is not a protein that exists in humans, which is why scientists believe it's safe to administer to people, and it's why the vaccine works to limit the spread of COVID. Then there are the fats, which comprise the envelope used to protect the RNA. Without them, the vaccine would be broken down by our bodies before it could do its work. Most of these are natural to our bodies, with the exception of polyethylene glycol, which is not. And this is most likely the cause of the allergic reactions in the few cases that have arisen. We've seen similar allergic responses to medications that have included this particular chemical. Then there are a few basic salts, including the equivalent of table salt, to produce the right liquid environment, to maintain the proper pH, and then there's a pinch, actually six milligrams of sugar, that's required to protect the vaccine during the freezing process in order that the fragile lipid shell is not damaged. All of these substances are used to package other medications of food that patients take, 99% and more, without difficulties. Another question a lot of people from outside the healthcare world are asking, especially in rural communities, is about the storage of the vaccine. We are hearing that the vaccines, especially the Pfizer ones, require extremely cold temperatures and special equipment to keep them cold in both 
shipping and at storage where the vaccine is being administered? Is it difficult for professionals to keep them at this right temperature, even during the shipping process or at more rural locations that don't have the same resources that a major hospital would have? Are the staff at these locations used to keeping things at these extreme temperatures? Are there any concerns that at some point in the distribution journey from the factory to administration of it, that they may briefly not be at the right temperatures and thus could be spoiled and become ineffective vaccines? Jeremy, in a previous episode of Coronavirus the Truth, we talked about the temperature requirements for the two currently approved vaccines. The Pfizer one needs to be at minus 70 degrees centigrade, while the Moderna one only requires cooling to minus 20 degrees centigrade. What's needed to transport the Pfizer vaccine are special freezers. And as you point out, they're unlikely to be found in every rural area. In contrast, the Moderna vaccine can be stored in the typical refrigerator, something that exists in every hospital and clinic, regardless of location. For this reason, most likely, in rural areas, the Moderna vaccine will be used, and there should be no reason why the staff cannot appropriately handle it, since it is not that different than other vaccines while the Pfizer vaccine that does require these ultra-cold freezers would be reserved for higher population areas, such as in major cities. I'm sure we'll get to it later in the show, but that is one of the many reasons why it was so vital for the president to sign the stimulus bill passed by Congress and signed by him last night, because in it, there's funding for this type of vaccine transportation and administration, which should help avoid problems from patients receiving the vaccine. Another listener asked, everyone at my company has been working virtually for the past six months. Overall, it has been excellent and we've enjoyed not having to commute 45 minutes each morning and evening. There are a few areas, however, in which we need to take a day to meet in person with people from multiple different departments. I'm still afraid of how fast this vaccine was approved and want to wait a little bit before deciding whether or not to take it. Can my employer force me to be vaccinated as a condition of employment? Jeremy, I've said several times in this podcast that I am not an infectious disease expert, but instead translate the opinions and recommendations of those who are. When it comes to this question, I want to be even clearer that I know far less about legal statutes than I do about medical research and clinical practice. However, based on what I have read and the legal scholars to whom I've spoken, it would appear that in the broadest of terms, that employers can put in place such a requirement. More specifically, depending upon the specific jurisdiction, there are laws that allow both private and public organizations to require vaccinations. We see that in schools and hospitals for a variety of infectious 
diseases. At the same time, the currently approved vaccines don't have final FDA approval, but only emergency use authorization. As such, it would be harder to apply the standards of the past for FDA-approved vaccines to the current unique circumstances. And of course, there are always a variety of medical and religious exemptions that have been upheld in the courts as well. Putting all the pieces together, any attempt would certainly encounter legal challenges. And for that reason, I'm unaware of any businesses planning to make vaccination mandatory, although many will be encouraging workers to be vaccinated. One final reality is that most people can't access the vaccine as of yet, even if they want to do so. As such, by the time that everyone is eligible, sometime this summer, let's say, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people will have already received it and will know a lot more about its safety than at the current moment. Currently, airlines are considering, as an example, a requirement that people be vaccinated for international travel. Although, again, today, all that's needed is a negative test in order to attempt to slow global spread, something that we've been unable to accomplish over the past 10 months of this pandemic. With the vaccine here, how are people's attitudes changing when it comes to social distancing? Also, I'm hearing on the news that many experts are saying that even after someone has received both doses of the vaccine, that they still need to wear masks and social distance. To be honest, this makes no sense to me. Uh, After someone is fully vaccinated, shouldn't they be able to return to their pre-pandemic lifestyle? Let me take each of your questions in order. First, according to the most recent Kaiser Family Foundation health tracking poll, 73% of Americans say they wear a mask every time they leave the house, compared to only 52% who said they did so in May. In contrast, 11% of people say they only wear masks some of the time or never. Similarly, 70% of respondents report being able to continue to follow social distancing requirements for an additional six months if necessary, with only 4% saying they can only last one more month and 9% saying they can't last any more. 68% of people are worried that someone in their family will become sick with COVID, and 51% of adults say that COVID-relating stress has negatively impacted their mental health. Overall, 58% of people think that the worst is yet to come, up significantly for September when it was only 38%. Putting all the pieces together, there's simultaneously greater fear and also greater psychological difficulty. People are slowly accepting this new normal, but having great difficulty doing it. The reason why masks and social distancing are recommended today, even after vaccination, are two. The first is we can't be sure 
that even though a vaccine protects the person from coming down with COVID, that they actually can't transmit the virus even though they are not sick. We haven't tested this hypothesis and mask wearing would protect those around them, even though the vaccine would already protect them themselves. And second of all, remember, if a vaccine is not 100% effective, even though you received this shot, you still could be vulnerable, which is why wearing masks to protect yourself works and why herd immunity is really going to be the goal before we can change social distancing expectations. And that's not likely to happen until the middle of 2021. With the number of people being exposed to COVID at an all-time high, listeners have told us that they often have to wait hours in line or drive long distances to get tested. What's the status of home testing? As listeners know from past shows, there are two ways to test for active disease. The first involves looking for the genetic material of the virus itself, which is laborious and time-consuming. The second is by testing for a particular protein on the virus using an antibody, a laboratory-produced antibody, that binds to it, similar to how a home pregnancy test works. This approach is rapid and inexpensive. The problem is that this second means of testing is less reliable than the first, both in being able to detect infection, particularly when viral counts are low, and also by generating a greater number of false positive results. As such, people may feel as though they are safe, when in fact they still are contagious, and they may feel as though they've had COVID and are now immune when that's not true. Assuming that the advantages of relatively accurate information are far greater than none, even if they're not exact, there's good news. The FDA granted emergency use authorization for the first over-the-counter home test. The kit comes from an Australian company called Elum. It takes 20 minutes to complete, and it can be used for both symptomatic and asymptomatic individuals as young as age two. The price will be relatively affordable, estimated to be around $30. The technology was developed following receiving $30 million of funding to the NIH's Rapid Acceleration of Diagnostics Initiative. And the company is hoping to have 3 million tests available by January and 20 million by the end of June. The test includes an ingenious process such that the person can't read the results directly as they would for a home pregnancy test. Instead, the information is transmitted through a smartphone app, which allows manufacturers to know how many people have tested positive and who they are, theoretically maximizing post-test isolation and contact tracing for those who test positive for the coronavirus. A week earlier, the FDA approved, under the same emergency use authorization process, a non-prescription home test, this one manufactured by LabCorp, but it does require processing through a laboratory. 
The test has been available for several months, but only on a prescription basis, and its cost is approximately $50. Robbie, as you know, I'm a big sports fan. What's new in this arena? Jeremy's sports continue to stumble along as one would predict, given the intimate nature of most sports, including football, baseball, soccer, and basketball. As you know, many of the NFL teams have had large numbers of COVID cases, sometimes requiring delay of games. At the college level, teams have canceled games, restricted who they would play, and decided to completely end seasons. College basketball will face the same challenges with one major women's team, Duke, having already decided not to play after completing four games. And one day into the NBA season, there were already problems. The league was forced to postpone a game between the Houston Rockets and Oklahoma City Thunder. After three players in the Rockets tested positive, four more had been exposed, and their best player, James Harden, was suspended for violating the league's health and safety protocols. In total, the team could not suit enough players to reach the league's minimum of having eight for a game. In the shortened last season, basketball teams lived in a bubble close to the Florida site where the games were played. This year, with players not being quarantined and not being kept in the bubble, we'll see COVID being a factor for teams. Interestingly, the league made the decision that it would be inappropriate for any player to be vaccinated ahead of the healthcare providers and nursing home residents slated for phase one. Whether this decision was a PR or true concern, I don't know. But it does mean that many teams will find themselves with star players out at least over the next few months. Jeremy, you're a historian. Although the 1918 influenza pandemic killed more Americans over its two-year trajectory than hopefully this one will, the first-year numbers were about the same, even when you correct for population growth. As a patient, does it surprise you that 100 years later, we're not much better at preventing death for those infected with viral disease? And we don't see much better at social distancing, given all of our new knowledge, than we did a century ago. It doesn't surprise me at all. Um, as with any major events in history, they fall into distant memory. And everyone that lived through the horrors of said event die. And the generations that follow forget or ignore the lessons learned from the event. Think of it similarly to an ancient city uh, barbarians may have raided uh, and caused extreme damage. The city then beats them back and fortifies its defenses, trains more soldiers, equips them with the best weapons and armor. Then 20, 30, maybe 40 years or more pass by with no attack from the barbarians. Then the city may have a famine or something else they need to get dedicate their resources to. They know the barbarians are still there, but because they haven't attacked in living memory, they're not viewed as the same threat they were in the years immediately following the previous raid. 
Then the barbarians raid again and are able to cause the same kind of damage they were able to all those years ago. I know, and this is all just kind of a random story I made up, but things like this happen over and over and over again. History repeats itself. As a historian, I look back at many of the pandemics from the past that were much worse and much deadlier than the current one. We should view this current pandemic as a wake-up call more than anything. There will eventually be another pandemic that is potentially much more contagious or much more deadly. If it happens, say, 100 years from now, which is essentially the same amount of time between this and the Spanish flu, I would assume this pandemic will have, again, faded into distant memory and governments around the world will have uh, other things they deem to be bigger priorities than preparing for the next pandemic, and we will once again be caught completely underprepared. If I had to put my money on whether we will or whether we will not be prepared for the next pandemic, history has taught me to put my money on us not being prepared. Robbie, can you provide details of the coronavirus stimulus bill that was passed by Congress and signed by the president last night? Jeremy, when you combine the stimulus dollars with the attached government funding bill, the total legislation is 5,593 pages long and the most expensive in history, although the actual coronavirus cost was less than in the first governmentally passed stimulus bill. The legislation obviously includes a massive number of items. In total, the bill has $900 billion dedicated to COVID and $1.4 trillion ominous spending bill, broad in content. But here are a few of the big pieces from the COVID portion of the legislation. First, there would be a second round of direct payments to people similar to the first stimulus bill that was passed. Households will receive $600 for each adult and $600 for each dependent, unlike in the first stimulus package where there was $1,200 and $500 respectively. The payments will be reduced for individuals earning over $75,000. Married couples earning over $150,000 would also have reduced the payments or none at all. This is one of the areas that the president balked at agreeing to and delayed the signing of the legislation. He is continuing to push for it to be raised to $2,000, and Congress will be taking that up this week. Second, unemployed workers would receive $300 extra subsidies, including those who are gig workers. Moreover, the bill extends eligibility for unemployment to 50 weeks rather than the 26 that exists prior to the pandemic in most states. Third, it extends the federal prohibition on eviction of renters who fail to make payments, and it provides $25 billion to assist those who are in arrears. Fourth, the bill provides $82 billion for public and private schools to help them deal with COVID. Fifth, states would receive in total about $40 billion for a variety of COVID-related functions, including testing, tracing, disease mitigation, and vaccine distribution. Sixth, there are over $400 billion for a variety of job preservation programs, including another round of forgivable Paycheck Protection Program loans, totaling $325 billion for small businesses, and dollars to support airline employee hiring, farmers, 
and targeted groups hurt by the social distancing restrictions, such as movie theaters, railroads, and the U.S. Postal Service. Among the many other provisions in the bill, Congress included the ending of surprise medical billing. This has been discussed for years with little action in Congress. Now it will happen, albeit starting in 2022. I'm intrigued by the elimination of surprise medical billing in this legislation. Uh, what is it and how will this legislation change the current practice? Surprise medical billing happens when a patient is treated by a doctor who hasn't signed a contract with the patient's insurance company. Under this circumstance, the physician can bill more than the insurance company reimburses and the patient must make up the difference. When the patient understands that the treating doctor is out of network and agrees to pay the added cost, that's fine. But often the patient has no idea it is happening until the bill comes in the mail and legal threats follow if it is not paid. When people go to a hospital that's in their insurance network, they reasonably assume that all the doctors that treat them, particularly the ER doctors, anesthesiologists, and assistant surgeons, will be part of the network. But increasingly, it's these doctors who are the ones who are refusing to join and billing unsuspecting patients, many of whom are coming in for emergent procedures. And the recent entry of private equity companies seizing on the opportunity for out-of-network billing has created a crisis leading to bankruptcy for a growing number of patients. The bill takes the patient out of the disagreement, limiting the person's financial obligations to what have been required had the doctor been in the network. It then gives the providers and the insurers 30 days to negotiate a settlement. After that, they do what's called baseball arbitration. Each side submits its best offer, and the arbitrator hears the positions and then must pick one or the other. The arbitrator does not have the ability to split the difference. The advantage of this approach is that it avoids the types of unrealistic expectations that might happen when the sides believe that the endpoint will be somewhere between the two extremes. Most commentators see this bill as favoring doctors and hospitals rather than insurance companies, and they predict that it's likely to drive up medical costs in the future. Some policy experts had hoped that either in-network fees would be mandated or the much lower Medicare rates imposed. As such, although the passage of this legislation, the restrictions that it has will protect patients from receiving unexpected bills, it could hurt consumers by forcing them to pay higher healthcare premiums in subsequent years. Robbie, two final questions. The first is, I read that U.S. life expectancy grew in 2019. Uh, what's likely to happen when the 2020 data is released? I have also heard some people say that the total deaths in the country are the same or slightly lower than the average year this year. I'm hearing from others that there are a lot more deaths than normal this year. What's actually going on with this, and what are your thoughts? Jeremy, you're correct that the mortality rates dropped by about 1% in 2019, and that life expectancy rose by a little over one month. At the end of 2019, the average life expectancy for an American was 78.8 years, significantly below many other nations. Now we are almost certainly going to see 2020 as the deadliest year in history, 
by a huge margin. Current estimates are that there will be over 3.2 million people dying by year's end, which will be 400,000 more than last year, and that life expectancy will decline by potentially as much as three years. It will be the single year highest percent increase since 1918, when hundreds of thousands of Americans died from a combination of World War I and the Spanish flu. In 2020, the over 300,000 deaths from COVID were obviously a major contributor to the soaring mortality. But that wasn't the whole story. In addition, our nation saw an unexpected number of deaths from heart and circulatory diseases, diabetes, and dementia, according to the CDC. The coronavirus has inflicted massive harm. Like all viruses, it takes advantages of its hosts to replicate and to spread to others and to kill. But this one took advantage of our broken healthcare system and the problematic medical culture that is part of it. Jeremy, if our nation doesn't recognize the failures and ensuing consequences that derive from valuing intervention over prevention and the need to maximize people's health and prevent chronic disease, not just treat the complications when they arise, this higher mortality rate and lower life expectancy could remain even after the COVID pandemic ends. Hopefully, what's happened this year will be a wake-up call for physicians and patients alike. And if so, at least there'll be some good that comes out of the current experience. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthCarePodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit our contact page on our website or send us a message on our Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook.